0: Luke chapter 13, where Paul read for us earlier. I've entitled the morning's message, The Necessity of Repentance. Picking it up in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no. But, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, This morning, uh, we will look at the importance of repentance and in the different ways it can and will affect you. We'll also look this morning um, how the, the Lord actually views sinners Um, We'll also be looking at the only sin that cannot be forgiven, uh, the unforgivable sin, which was called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We'll be looking into the life of David and the consequences of trying to hide your sin. Uh, We will also look at um, the reasons, the real reasons people um, don't repent When they hear the gospel, uh, why they don't come to Christ with all the good news that it is, they exercise their free will and they choose not to accept God's free gift. We will um, look at the striving that goes on in our life when the Lord is convicting us of sin and how much the scriptures has to say about this wrestling match that we all go through when uh, we're convicted of sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and the wrestling match that takes place. We'll give scriptures that look at that. We'll also look at the reality that God will forgive even the worst of sinners. So, sort of an overview um, there's a lot of theology that I could draw out of these five verses of Luke chapter 13, but let's go back and look at how the Lord views sin, and we just read it. He, he gave two comparisons. Evidently, the Galileans had a reputation anyway as being ruffians. They, we, we know that they had a certain accent, like the youpers do. <laughs> if you're a youper, you know it. You're, you're a dead giveaway. Uh, so were the Galileans. Uh, when they arrested the Lord, uh, they approached Peter. And go, oh, yeah, well, we know you. I recognize that accent. You're, you're a Galilean. And um, so the Galileans, the Lord raises this question. He says, what do you think about um, the Galileans? Do you think because... Uh, um, Uh, they were worse sinners because they suffered such things when Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifice? And he comes right out and says no. And then he backs it up with another example, evidently where they were building projects, and a tower fell, killed 18 guys. And um, do you think that happened because uh, they were sinners? You know, it's a whole Job mentality thing of Job's friends. Job, what did you do wrong that all these bad things are happening to you? Jesus is addressing this question and he's addressing this issue. And he says no. Now what this explains to us is how God views sinners. And it's basically all the same. In other words, he, he doesn't... Um, um, the Lord sees all men the same, sinners in the need of repentance, or you will perish. So that means you're as much of a sinner as I am, and I'm as much as a sinner as you are. Or you might, we have, we have a tendency in our human nature on how we view sin. We have this tendency to judge the severity of the sin compared to a little white lie. Well, it was just a little white lie. Haven't you ever heard that one before? No, a lie is a lie, and a lie is sin. Right? Amen for that? So what the Lord is basically saying is there's no degrees as far as he's concerned. When Adam fell, sin infected the human race, and it's across the board. There are no exemptions except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only one not affected with, it says, through one man's sin, Adam, death entered the world. And what the Lord is basically just laying out here, it's not um, on a level of one is a worse sinner than the other, even though I suppose you could make the case that that's true, a killer and a rapist and and somebody who gets caught stealing from the grocery store. But as far as the Lord's concern and the point that he's making here, he says no, but he goes right to the heart of the issue. Unless you repent because you are a sinner, you will perish. I could get sidetracked here, but I'll just point out um, one. Um, And that is, there is one exception. And uh, that is um, Luke chapter... 12. Let's go back to verse 10. Let's talk about this one. There is one sin that cannot be forgiven. And we find it in chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. This is the exception. So that begs a question and raises a question: what in the world is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's use um, Peter preaching um, at the day of Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he presents the gospel. He accused the people for being responsible for killing the very Messiah that was sent to them. He came to die for your sins. And when it got to that part of the Bible study that Peter was given, it says they were cut in their heart. In other words, they were convicted. Last week we were talking about the main purpose of the Holy Spirit uh, before conversion is to convict the world of sin. And so while Peter was preaching, they go, he's absolutely right. We did do that. And it convicted them to the point where they asked the question, so what do we do? If we killed our own Messiah, now what? And the Lord says, repent and be baptized. And um, I'm sure there were more than 3,000 people there that day, but 3,000 people um, uh, accepted the Lord. But more people than that were there. We don't was, Peter was preaching under the authority of the Holy Spirit because He was explaining to them the phenomena of uh, the Holy Spirit being heard and seen on the day of Acts. And he explains it. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that this was going to happen. Now, my point here is, what about the others who for one reason or another said no at that time? Well, if they died in that state of denial, I guess that's a good way to put it that no, I don't want to believe that, I don't believe that, then you have committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus said it will not be forgiven in this life if you commit that sin or in the life to come. Let me just do a little sidetrack here. I like to expose false doctrine when I can and uh, this is one of the places where well, there's a doctrine some very well-known Bible teachers hold to, it's called annihilation, the annihilation of the soul. And that is basically, they would take the word perish here and have you believe that when you die, that's all there's to it, it's all over. But the Lord clearly is saying in um, another place with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or in the one to come. It won't be forgiven there either. The Bible clearly um, points to perishing as being a place of torment that the rich man was in. So when you come across the terminology of either soul sleep or the annihilation of the soul or um, um, when, a, when you die, it's all over. No, when you die, it's not all over. You will be just as aware and conscious of who you are, other people, just like the rich man who died and found himself in hell, the reality that there was nothing he could do about it, it was eternal. So, but it's so, isn't it appealing to the heart to think, yeah, if, if a guy dies, at, that's just it. You just, It's all over, you don't have to think about nothing else. The word of God does not teach that. The word of God teaches that if you reject the gospel, then the consequences are eternal and there's nothing you can do to change it. Good place for an amen. Amen. This is what God's word teaches. My emotions would like to maybe think otherwise, but God is just and God is holy and therefore um, there are repercussions and and, uh, consequences for a person's sin. All right. All right. Now, the gospel also is under attack today um, because we're narrow-minded and bigoted and, and um, um, we don't believe that uh, Allah and uh, Jehovah are the same God. And um, the Lord went out of his way to give parables, the wheat and the tares, that in the world in which we live, the devil will seed the world with all kinds of different religions. I was online yesterday uh, getting sidetracked from, I think, a Jam Markel program and a woman who was giving her testimony about going, going to heaven. And after the interview, was, you never know with things like this whether it's legit or not, but the person doing the interviewing says, yes, yes, I agree with you completely. It's like karma and um, reincarnation. If you don't get it right the first time, you come back and you have another chance. Well, that's really appealing Sounds nice. It's what most of people in India hold to, our reincarnation. Um, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says once to die and then the judgment. And um, if you're taking notes, Acts 4 verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I call it the narrow way. The Bible says the Christian walk is narrow and few, not many, few will be that find it. But broad is a gate that leads to destruction and many will be that find that. Now as I watch our world spiral down, I do not expect it to get better. I expect it to get worse and worse as we seek to become more politically correct and finding our society being more emotionally based than biblically based. And I'll be straight with you guys. If you don't have this book under your belt and know what it says, you will be deceived in this generation. The deceptions are that great. And it's gonna reach a crescendo by the time we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter two at the rapture where it says, and a strong delusion will come. That they will believe the lie. They'll explain it all away. And um, let's move on. Um, ask the question why would men or women reject God's forgiveness uh, and turn from their sin? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We call it the good news. to have your slate wiped clean from your past. Too good to be true. But it is true. But yet there's many who reject. And the question is, why? Well, John 3, verse 18 to 21 tells us why people do not come to Christ. In verse 18, it says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to stop doing um, uh, the things that I'm involved in that are related with sin. Um, if, If they do, then my evil deeds will be exposed. There's one more verse, 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Why don't people come to the Lord? Well, because they have a free will And they don't want to give up their sinful lifestyle. It's not that they don't know the truth. It's just that they don't want to come to it because it's going to mean when a person is born again, what does it say? Old things pass away. All things become new. I remember going through the struggle. I remember the early part of hearing the gospel and began to analyze it. What's the cost going to be? How much is it going to change me if I had had ever do something like that? And these are things that people really wrestle with. Um, Probably turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Moses really had the world at his feet. Says he was trained in all the wisdom and knowledge of of Egypt. According to the movie, The Ten Commandments, he was in line with his half-brother to be Pharaoh. We don't know if that's true or not. But he was definitely in an elevated position being brought up in the palace in Egypt. But he had to make a choice. So we're reading in Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and everything that went with it. Choosing. I got that word not only underlined, but I got it in a box. Choosing. Rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And I like this because the Bible's so honest. There is pleasure in sin, but it's passing. So he's saying, I'm make it, making a choice here. I get the world up my hands. I could be the world. I could be Pharaoh. But he sees his brothers suffering and he said, I'd rather choose the suffering with my people, who are God's people, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, which is only for a period of time. He was wise, because the passing pleasures of sin is this long, and eternity has no beginning or end. It always will be. He goes on to say, Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked To the reward. And by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is impossible. This is the chapter on faith. Why have we left the old ways? Why do we hold that there's something better? Um, Because God's word clearly lays out a game plan, that he's got a kingdom that's coming. Uh, Revelation tells us you're going to rule and reign with him. The degree of responsibility, according to a parable that he tells, is the degree of our faithfulness to him now. In big things, in little things, as long as you're faithful. He's not looking for ability, he's looking for availability. He's looking for you to exercise your free will to line up with his will. Another good place for an amen. So we find, why don't people come? To the light, well, it's a choice. Everybody has a choice. And um, we live uh, by our choices. The next one, what happens to the person who has sinned yet will not choose to confess his sin but rather try to hide it? For this one, we need to go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. And basically, I'm gonna go through the the whole chapter because um, um, to me, David is my hero and I can't believe that this happened, yet it did because of his humanness. Came to pass in the spring of the year, chapter 11, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman who was bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, uh, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he laid with her For she was cleansed from her impurity and she uh, returned to her house. And the woman conceived and then she sent word. So we have a period of time that has passed. David commits adultery with Uriah. Now when you read about David's mighty men, the very last one it mentions of his mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. So now his sin is going to be exposed unless somehow he can conceal it. So what he does is he calls for Joab. And he brings Joab in, and um, um, he sends for Uriah to come home. The way he wants to cover his his tracks is to bring him back, you know, this phony conversation with us, how's the war going, How's how's Joab doing, blah, blah, blah had him over for supper. Oh, you're getting tired. You, why don't we just call it a night and go home and I'll, I'll talk to you again tomorrow. So Uriah, he went home, but he would not go in his house. Um, he slept outside with his servants. And the next day, David gets the word, yeah, well, he went home, but he didn't go home and he didn't sleep with his wife. He stayed up all night. And David said, I brought you home so you get some R&R. What's the problem? And now we see the integrity of the man. And Uriah says, well, how can I do that? The Ark of the Covenant and uh, your men are sleeping under the stars tonight, and I'm gonna go home and and, uh, enjoy my wife I could. Who could do such a thing? And I, um, that had to bring some sort of conviction upon David. And now he has a problem. So he says, well, why don't you come out over for supper again tonight? And um, to loosen him up, well, he more than loosens him up. The Bible clearly says he got um, Uriah drunk. And then he sent him home. But the same thing. He would not go into his house. He slept outside. And now David has a problem. Verse 13, now when David called him, he ate and drank before him. He made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down into his house. David has a problem. How does he fix it? Well, he's gotta go. So... He writes a letter and he gives it to Uriah and he tells him to give it to Joab, the general. And in the letter, David lays out, he says, Joab, this is what I want you to do. I want you to attack the city. I want you to get Uriah as close to the wall as possible with valiant men and then have all the men draw back but make sure Uriah stays there. And Joab knew exactly what David was up to and he followed the king's order and now the word comes comes back um by messenger um and basically said uh, the job is done if you go down to verse uh, 20 uh, verse 18 then joab sent and told david all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying now when you have finished telling David the master of the war to the king. And it happens that the king his wrath rises and he says to you why did you approach so near to the city when you fought. Didn't you know that they would shoot from the wall. Um, who struck Abimelech the son of uh, uh, Jerubesheth?" You. Uh, Was it not a woman who cast a millstone on him from the wall? And by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David just brushes it off and he says, Well, you know, verse 25, Thus you shall say to to Joab, Don't let the thing bother you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city. Overthrow it. And so, encourage him. Now, no sooner, in verse 26 and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. It would have been for a set time. The Bible doesn't tell us how long. But when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, Before I go on to chapter 12, I would like you to turn to Psalm uh, 32. What happens to a person when they sin and they seek to conceal it and hide it and do what David did here, even getting away with it, or so he would think? Well, David would write about this experience in Psalm 51 and 32, And here, it's after chapter 12. So we're going to go back to chapter 12. But he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. During a period of time when he's sending the report to kill Uriah, During that period of time where he thought he had covered his sin, not only did he commit adultery, but he actually killed Bathsheba's husband. Murder and adultery. It was during this time that David is now telling what he was personally going through inside. When I kept silent, this is before he's busted by Nathan the prophet. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groanings all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That's what happens to people who hide their sin. You can hide your sin um, from everyone except two. That's yourself and the Lord. And you have to live with that. And what it'll cause you to do, it'll be before you night and day. And there's no release from it until repentance. So he goes on to say, then I acknowledge my sin. Well, it hasn't yet. But when he did, when I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. For you forgave the iniquity of my sin, say la. And Psalm 32 is David writing, what he was going through day and night—the torment that was in his soul—because he was um, living an unconfessed sin. Back to Second um, Samuel chapter 12. This is great. If ever a man is set up and busted, it was David. In chapter 12, we have the Lord sending Nathan the prophet to David. Said, David, I got a problem. I need some uh, kingly advice. Um, yeah, there was these two men in one city, one rich, and the other guy was poor. And the rich man, he had all kinds of uh, flocks and herds, but the poor, the poor man in town, he only had one little lamb. And um, he nourished it, grew up with him, uh, slept with the kids, ate his own food, and um, it was like a daughter to him. So, we would liken that to uh, your pet. What is it about dogs that are so irresistible? They're so. They love you no matter what. And can they hide their guilt when they've done something wrong? Oh, they're so terrible at it. <laughs> Did you. They, they can't. They're so busted. You get. Did you do that to that pillow? And uh, they're, they're just so transparent and and talk about unconditional love. Um, I mean, there are dog people, right? And then there's cat people. Boy, do I know how to divide a crowd. <laughs> All right, this is out my notes, but I can't resist. This is a story that um, um, the people didn't know me when I was going to India in the 90s, I would stop. We have—we actually have a castle. It's a Bible school. It's beautiful. It's in Austria. And um, because I was passing through, they asked me to teach. Um, I said, okay, we can do that. But um, I thought I'd have a little fun because they didn't know me and I didn't know them. So I asked the the guy who was the overseer, I said, tell me a little bit about the students here. What? What do they kid themselves about? He says, ah, that's easy. There's cat people here who love cats, and then there's dog people here that love dogs. And the two never meet. It's either or. Either you love dogs or you love cats. So I get up, and I say, well, you know, Pastor Chuck asked me to stop here, and I tried to be as serious as I could, and he uh, told me there's division, there's division problems here at the castle at the bible school and he he sent me here to address the issue and uh you could have heard a pin drop (laughs) oh no what did we do and i and i'm and i'm here to make this thing settle it and settle it right now so you guys can get on with 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 your work here at the school and all i said was i love dogs it took a whole five, ten seconds for that to settle in. <laughs> but then, all the ice was broken, and uh, they knew I was messing with them. Um, but I love dogs, and my wife loves cats, and we get along anyway, so can you imagine that? <laughs> Back to the Bible study. Okay. Here's this man who has this, we got sidetracked with this lamb that's like a dog, family pet. And instead of, he had to prepare a meal for a stranger, but the rich man, but instead of taking from his own flock, he went and took the only one that was a pet and he killed that one and that's what he served a stranger for supper. And when David heard it, Verse five, his anger arose against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing will surely die. Well, the death penalty for stealing a lamb is not death, number one, okay? Um, What he says next, he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. That was part of the law, but not a death sentence. And so, you know, the prophet has David right where he wants him. And he shall restore fourfold because he did this thing and became because he had no pity. And Nathan looks at David and said, you are the man. And thus the Lord God of Israel, I appointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. David, I gave you so much. I gave you property, wives, houses, And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more. Why, verse 9, have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite. He knew with the sword. You have taken his wife. He knew to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword and the people of Ammon. And then now there's consequences that are going to come as a result of it. You did it secretly, David, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. This was completed with Absalom when he drove David out of town. And in verse 13, then um, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He knew what he did. It wasn't against Bathsheba. It wasn't against Uriah. He sinned, against the lord. And in the next breath Nathan said to David, "The lord has put away your sin, you shall not die." Now, the penalty for what David had did was stoning, both with the adultery and with the murder. He was guilty on both charges. But yet he confessed at this time and he says, "I have sinned. I have sinned against the lord by doing this." And Nathan says, Um, The Lord has put away your sin, David. Let's go to Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. Well, sort of pried out of him, but he did. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That's true about every person. Um... You were born ruined. I think it's a Dylan line. You came in with a deadly disease, and the only cure for it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Another good place for it, amen. You see, it's not the matter of the degree that is in Luke 13. It's the fact that it's a part of your DNA, and it's across the board with everybody. No exceptions to the rule. I was brought forth. In other words, I was born a sinner. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. So purge me with your hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. And hide not your face, hide your face from my sin, and blot out my iniquities. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And I like this verse. Restore to me the joy of, of your salvation, and uphold me with your generous spirit, that I will teach trans- then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Let's go back to... Um, second Samuel and um, find David sins being forgiven however the consequences the sin can be forgiven but consequences can remain and such was the case in this case um, the Lord said he would take the son that would be born to Bathsheba. And before the child died, David went into fasting and prayer mode, he didn't wash, and he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't drink. He wept before the Lord, pleading for the life of the child, and then the child died. And they went and told David. David got up, washed himself, and um, they couldn't figure it out. They were asking him... Um, Verse 21, a servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You, you fasted and wept for the child while, his, while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. So he said, well, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for, I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I want to camp on this verse and make this statement. What happens to babies when they die? What happens to an aborted child when he dies? This verse here is a verse that for me um, is sound biblical fact. And David saying, this baby is dead, and I'm going to go to him someday. But he's not going to return to me. David knew he was going to heaven. What happens when a baby dies? He's in heaven. Uh, I believe every person under the age of accountability. What's that, Dwight? Well, it gets to that place we'll be talking about it when we get to Jonah in just a little bit. It's when you know the difference between right and wrong. Now, in Israel, they have what's called a bar mitzvah. And it's when, at the age of 13, um, the young men they feel can discern right from wrong. And they're allowed to study with the, their parents and with the religious leaders. So, where that line is, <laughs> aren't you glad, glad you're not God? Because for some it's 11, for some it's 14. Um, I know some people that I think it's 40 or 45. <laughs> no, but only the Lord knows. But what an incredible, I don't want to be God, I'll tell you that, because he's got to decide. Where's that? Where, there is a line, and it's different with every person. When they come to that place, I'm holding you accountable for what you've just done. I'm holding you accountable for understanding the gospel. I'm holding you accountable for accepting and rejecting my free gift. But until you get to that age where you understand these things, you're not accountable. First Corinthians seven basically tells us the same thing. And I don't believe it's just for Christians. I believe every baby that has ever died is in heaven. And um, um, if you have a problem with that, you're wrong and I'm right. and We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Just kidding. So we find here, I, I wanted to read all of this first because I wanted to talk a little bit about that. For those of you that have lost children, that are young, they're fine. You ever wonder what they look like when, they're, when, when, when you get to heaven and you go, well, they were just a baby. I wonder what they look like. Most of you are thinking they look just like me. <laughs> all right, let's make our way... Um, Let's make our way back to 1 Kings. Now I can go to 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, Dwight, if you knew what I did, God could never forgive the sin that I have sinned. I picked 1 Kings chapter 21 because of Ahab. And we read in verse 25 about this king. It says, First Kings 21, verse 25, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved very abominably and following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel So it was when Ahab heard those words, the judgment that was going to come upon him, that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his body, and he laid in sackcloth, and he went about um, mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, do you see that? See how Ahab has humbled himself before me, And because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his day. In other words, he's forgiving Ahab, the most wicked king in Israel, but there still was going to be consequences, but he would not bring those consequences during his time. I will bring, um, uh, in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his own house. Um, What's your, your point, Dwight? Well, when it comes to repentance, I couldn't find anybody worse than the Bible because he humbled himself. If you're taking notes, Psalm 34:18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 138. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. He resists the proud, but he draws close to the person who will humble themselves and um, be broken just like Ahab here. All right, back to our text as we get to close this up this morning. Luke chapter 13 with a closing question. The Lord's teaching on repentance. Do you suppose some sinners are worse than other sinners? Not in God's book, because we're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now if you can take that out of the Bible study this morning and it's not an an issue of how bad your sin is. It's the fact that you're just a sinner. And then he says, unless you repent, because all have sinned, you will perish. If you don't accept God's grace, you will go to hell. And um, unfortunately, we don't hear too many fire and brimstone messages these days. They want it just the other way around. Tell me something I want to hear, it'll make me feel good. I don't want to hear about hell. I don't want to hear about the consequences of my sin. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. It makes me nervous. It better make you more than nervous. I like to say that ignoring the gospel is like playing Russian roulette with your soul. Uh, the danger of it. And I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. I wouldn't walk across that street if I didn't know for sure my sins were forgiven. Because I might get hit by a car between here and there. And that's that's the fear. It says the fear of the Lord leads a person to repentance. And when we read the Bible correctly, the Bible has an awful lot to say about repentance. What was the first words of the Lord? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what's at stake here. And repentance and a broken and a contrite spirit is the only way to avoid it. So here's my closing question. Have you turned from your sin and accepted through repentance the free gift of God's grace through Jesus dying in your place? Are you having and living in any hidden sin that nobody knows about except you and the Lord? My Bible says be careful. Your sin will find you out. You see, it's only a matter of time. And so you can shorten the process and... um, um, be like David. You'll be able to sleep again at night. Your, your bones won't grow weary. You'll have the joy of the Lord again. And fellowship, sin separates us from God. Return unto me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. I want to be free again. You want to be free again? Get rid of the hidden sin. Don't pretend it doesn't exist and don't try to cover your tracks like David. 2 Corinthians 5, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'd like to close, and somebody's saying, Dwight, you already said that once. (laughs) I'd like to close with an Old Testament picture of real repentance, what it looks like. So let's turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of the minor prophets, it is right after the book of Obadiah, and it is right before the book of Micah. And as you're turning, I'm going to give you a little. We were here on Wednesday evening, so this will be familiar verses to you. The Ninevites were the worst of the worst. They were brutal beyond belief with the people that they would capture, and they would torture them. But the Lord calls. Jonah, and he says, Jonah, I'm going to send you to Nineveh, and um, I, w- I want you to um, uh, tell them that they need to repent, and because I'm going to bring judgment on them. So uh, Jonah goes down to Joppa, a uh, beautiful, quaint city um, on the Mediterranean, and uh, he gets in a boat and he heads for Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And uh, so he's on the run. The Lord told him to go to Nineveh, he's on his way to Tarshish, and all of a sudden a storm comes up, and for some reason the crew is picking up that this is not a normal storm. So they're going around talking to each other. Everybody calling your God. They're throwing cargo overboard and everything, trying to lighten the ship. He tried roaring back to shore, but it was only getting worse. Jonah's down in the deck. He's sleeping. And the guy goes down and shakes him and wakes. He says, wake up. Call upon your God. And um, uh, who knows, he might hear. Uh, finally, they cast lots to determine who was causing the storm. They perceived it was a supernatural storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. So they cornered Jonah and say, Jonah, you're the problem. And he says, who are you anyway? He says, well, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the true and living God who made everything, the land and the sea. And that terrified them even more. And they said, how are we going to survive this storm? He says, well, all all I have to do is throw me overboard and everything will be fine. But they couldn't do that. So it says they rode harder to try to get to land but they couldn't. So what they did is they threw Jonah overboard. And we read in verse 17 that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Quoted in the New Testament by the Lord himself as a picture of him being three days and three nights after his crucifixion before that resurrection. In our psalm that we read this morning, The very first verse, it says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. That's exactly the prayer of Jonah. He's on the run, so how does the Lord get his attention? He puts him in this fish, and in verse 2, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea and the flood surrounded me. And verse seven, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. There's another Psalm that says, "Um, until I I was afflicted, I went astray. Are you mean to telling me that God uses affliction to get our attention? The answer to that question is, absolutely. I would guess to say most of us here came to the Lord under dire consequences or in need of some great need. Here he says, when my soul fainted, when I was at the end, we might say the end of our rope, I, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to him into the holy temple. Uh, for those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercies. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving and I, and I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And I love this verse. So the Lord, the King James has it better, vomited Jonah out on dry land. Oh, what I'd like to have seen what Jonah looked like after being three days in, in the stomach acid of a fish. Um, I think he probably would have been pretty bleached, bleached out at this time. And here's a great verse, chapter three, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He's given him a second chance. Aren't you glad that we have a God who gives second chances and third chances and four if necessary or whatever? And so Jonah goes to Nineveh and he entered the city in verse four. On the first day, then he cried out and said, 40 days, Nineveh, and it's all over your history. I had you turn here because I want you to see what real repentance looks like. It is between verses five and nine. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatness to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of the Ninevites, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's a broken and a contrite spirit. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by a decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything, do not let them eat, drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one of them from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. And who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn from his first anger so that he will not perish. And the Lord saw it. The Ninevites, the worst of the worst. And then God saw their works and they Turned from their evil way, and God relented. He changed his mind from the disaster that He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. And in verse chapter four, verse one, Jonah was so excited. it was the greatest revival in world history. Every person he preached to repented, praise the Lord, they're all saved. It's not what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry and then he prayed. And uh, Here's Dwight's paraphrase. I knew it. I knew you were gonna do this. I know who you are. Why do you think I took off to tarsus? I knew that if I came to Nineveh and preached, they might actually repent. And I know your nature. I know the kind of God you are. And so here is the nature of our God when you hear people say things like, how could a God, your God that you believe in, do this or do that or do that? What kind of a God is he anyway? Well, when they ask that question, give them this for an answer. So we prayed, Lord, was this not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, that you're merciful, God. That you're slow to anger, your abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please let me die. (laughs) You saved all these people, and you're good and gracious and long suffering, so let me die. Jonah's quite a character. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah said, you're darn right, it's right for me to be angry. And I, I'm thinking he's bleached out and it's hot and um, the sun is scorching his head so the Lord causes a plant to come up gives him shade for a day. But then he created a worm and the worm ate the plant and the plant died and now he doesn't have any shade and uh, Jonah's pouting about it. Well, my plant died and it's giving me shade and now I don't have any shade of my head And the Lord's using it as an object lesson for Jonah. He said, Jonah, come here. You're having compassion on this plant that covered your head and gave you a little comfort. And he says in verse 10, you had pity on the plant from which you have not labored and not made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left hand and much livestock. What does that mean? Well, when a kid finally figures out, oh, this is my, this is my right hand and this is my left hand, he's saying there's 120,000 kids. They're innocent. And they are just being brought up in this, uh, what their family is teaching them. You wanna have pity on a a plant, but you don't want me to have compassion on children. Well, we could get sidetracked here with issues that are going through our school systems today and in our government when it comes to the abortion issue and um, God's concern for these young innocent ones. All right. Now we're gonna close this morning. That's the third time I said it. (laughs) Romans chapter one, but this time I mean it. What, you doubt? The nature of God and judgment and repentance. Sin is sin, none is greater, none is less in God's eyes. And unless you repent, you will perish. Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I do not believe there is any such thing as an atheist. You heard me right. I do not believe there's any such thing as an atheist. You've heard people say, well, I'm an atheist. And I say, no, you're not. What do you mean? No, I'm not. I just told you I was. Well, either you're lying or the Bible's lying, so I'm gonna stick with the Bible. What does it say? They suppress the truth. In other words, you can't walk outside and look at a sunset or a butterfly or any part of creation or the complexity of the human mind and brain, your intellect, your capacity to have emotions and feelings and have all these capacities and say that they happened by chance no you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them well how has he shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal godhood so that they are without excuse You can't say, Well, I I don't believe in heaven, I don't believe in hell, and I don't believe in God. Oh, they do. But they're suppressing that on purpose. But because of creation, the Lord's saying, You know that I am. You are without excuse. For although they knew God, they would not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile. And their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed themselves to become wise. You know that you can't get into a university today if you teach creation? No, you will not be allowed in that university. Only evolution. Check me out on that one. Unless it's a Christian university, of course. And even some of them. Professing themselves to become wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now the reason I brought you here is twofold as we do close this up this morning. And that is that you can come to a point with your free will where if you insist on rejecting the gospel and you continually harden your heart against the truth, suppressing what you know to be true, then it says in verse 24, God gave them up. Now, to me, that's the scariest verse in the Bible. where the, It's like Genesis six, where their thoughts were only evil continually. And our society is going that way really quick. And, um, but there comes that place where the Lord says, well, you have a free will, and if this is what you really want, then I'm gonna let you have it. But here are the consequences. I'm going to give you up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even the woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heirs, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. One, I call it a a seared conscience. We had uh, in the updates uh, an article. It was basically called A seared conscience. A seared conscience is a conscience that can kill without any remorse or any regret. Gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness. The list here is not just homosexuality. Let's read the rest of the list. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, they're backbiters, haters of God. By the way, gang, this, these are all in the same category as the one I read previously with homosexuality. Violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous judgments of God. There it is again. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. If you resist what Romans 1 tells us, the truth, and replace it with the lie, if you resist, you will have been guilty of committing the unforgivable sin the only sin that God will not forgive. And God will give you over to your own will. And I'll close by saying, please take this study seriously if you have hidden sin, because it will find you out someday. If you have never accepted the free gift of salvation and you're still in your sin, that should terrify you to no end because once to die and then the judgment. And I got my final note here, don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Why? Because Jesus said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will perish. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, we're grateful that you don't pull any punches. Um, You give us the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, much of the world are professing themselves to become wise and think they're wiser than your word and your ways. Lord, give us that broken and contrite spirit. I pray for any today that are messing around and are hiding hidden sins. I pray that you would deal with them through this Bible study this morning in the same way that you dealt with David. I pray, Lord, they would be miserable. I pray that your heavy hand would be upon them. I pray that they would lose sleep at night until they come to that place where David did and he confessed his sin before you. And then you were quick to restore to David the joy of his salvation. I pray for that one here this morning or those watching online, that they would be doing that even as we pray. That is over. Lord, I give it to you. And um, please restore to them the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. A seared conscience. A seared conscience is a conscience that can kill without any remorse or any regret. Gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness The list here is not just homosexuality. Let's read the rest of the list. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, they're backbiters, haters of God. By the way, gang, these are all in the same category as the one I read previously with homosexuality. Violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous judgments of God. There it is again. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. If you resist what Romans 1 tells us, the truth, and replace it with the lie. If you resist, you will have been guilty of committing the unforgivable sin, the only sin that God will not forgive. And God will give you over to your own will. And I'll close by saying, please take this study seriously if you have hidden sin, because it will find you out someday. If you have never accepted the free gift of salvation and you're still in your sin, that should terrify you to no end. Because once to die and then the judgment, and I got my final note here, don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Why? Because Jesus said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will perish. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, we're grateful that you don't pull any punches. Um, You give us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, Much of the world are professing themselves to become wise and think they're wiser than your word and your ways. Lord, give us that broken and contrite spirit. I pray for any today that are messing around and are hiding hidden sins. I pray that you would deal with them through this Bible study this morning in the same way that you dealt with David. I pray, Lord, they would be miserable. I pray that your heavy hand would be upon them. I pray that they would lose sleep at night until they come to that place where David did and he confessed his sin before you. And then you were quick, to restore to David the joy of his salvation. I pray for that one here this morning or those watching online, that they would be doing that even as we pray. That it's over. Lord, I give it to you, and um, please restore to them the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.